Kelly, welcome to WGN Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, I'm delighted that you have uh, have agreed to talk with me. My first question is, okay, your beat is high-tech and plant life. Now, did the reporters at the Trib all draw subjects out of a hat, or am I missing a connection? <laughs> no, actually. I worked pretty hard to become the marijuana reporter, believe it or not. It's a little coveted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you did you uh, claim to have a lot of experience in this field, or ha- what was your what was your big pitch to the to the editors? You know, why Allie? No, actually. So uh, when I came to the Tribune four or five years ago, I um, the medical industry was just getting off the ground here in Illinois, and it was really small. There weren't a lot of patients, or basically the customers yet. So people weren't paying a lot of attention to it, but I could tell that it was going to end up being a pretty, a pretty big industry. Um, and I'm in the business section of the Tribune, right? And eventually it, I thought it might be pretty big business and that is what it has turned out to happen. So they let me start doing, you know, a story one month, every other month here and there. And, um, it's really interesting. So a lot of those small companies I was covering a few years ago are now some of the leaders in the industry. Wow. Now, when you said the medical industry, five years old, I'm thinking, oh, they've had doctors in hospitals forever. I assume you're talking like big pharma or something like that? Uh, medical marijuana industry. Oh, yeah. so that was, okay. Um, that was the first thing that took off here in Illinois was the medical industry. They made that legal in 2013, I believe. Okay. Okay. Um, and then dispensaries that were medical only started opening in the state at the end of 2015. So those ran for a few years serving only medical patients. And to get to become a medical patient, you had to have one of um, I think it, a list of like 40-ish conditions. It's pretty strict here mm-hmm. in Illinois, not like some of the states out west where you could go in and say you had, you know, back pain, even right. though you were a 21-year-old, and they would right. give you a medical card, you know. Um, so then they built the recreational marijuana industry kind of off the medical industry. And, and still even today, we're um, almost seven months into recreational sales. And it's still the same operators that were operating in the medical marijuana industry selling recreational weed now. So that's kind of where we're at. How long did it take the proponents who were trying to get this passed to actually get it passed? And I guess we'd start with, you know, as you say, you weighed it in with medical marijuana and now it's recreational. But when did this drive to legalize marijuana in any form begin? That's a great question. I mean, I'm sure it's been around for decades. You know, yeah. I've only lived in Illinois about six years, but um, for specifically with building the law, they've—I know that they've been trying at least since they got medical. Oh yeah, um, a medical law passed, and it was really interesting the way they did it here in Illinois, actually, because in other states where it has become legal, people vote it in, but here we did it legislatively. So, in other words, they wrote a law. You know, and did it that way. And uh, I know that they were trying to pass laws a few years ago, but they knew that they wouldn't pass. So they just kind of wanted to lay the groundwork, that sort of thing. Um, and then when Governor Pritzker was running for office, he was sort of saying, you know, this is one of the things I'm going to do right away. And he did. It was one of the first things he did right away. And um, last year, May or June, I believe, signed the law. And then everybody kind of had six months to get ready for recreational sales, which was a bit of a whirlwind. Wow. So we have a politician who actually made good on a campaign promise. 
Right. So, which is pretty pretty alarming right there. And no vote, of course, spared you all of the litany of commercials you see in every other state where the, the pro and the con uh, viewpoints make it out to be the end of the earth if, if it doesn't go through. So I assume there were lobbyists on both sides, uh, since it was a legislative issue, who were hitting up politicians on why they should or shouldn't pass it. And who were the big opponents of this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'm trying to think back. I know that um, initially when the first law came out, there some police unions were worried about it. You know, there was originally, and some states out west have done this too, where with recreational marijuana, they let you grow your own at home. Mm-hmm. And some police forces came out and they were like, we can't do that. Like, we don't know how we're going to be able to tell the difference between somebody who's allowed to grow it and someone who's not allowed to grow it and this and that. Um, so they peeled that back a little bit and there were some shifting in the law and other concerns about safety. And, um, you know, I think there's still concern in, you know, the medical industry, not the medical marijuana industry, but actual hospitals and doctors, um, especially with the medical patients, right? Because initially when they wrote the medical marijuana law, doctors had to prescribe it and very quickly they changed that (laughs) doctors were like i'm not comfortable prescribing this you know i don't know anything about it there have been no clinical studies um which is still an issue like the whole the industry around the country still lacks clinical studies because it's illegal on you know um, a national scale so yeah i mean i'm trying to think back to remember who else was an opponent of it but there's definitely both sides and One thing that's interesting with the law here in Illinois is that it really gives jurisdiction to the local municipalities, the towns and the villages and the cities throughout the state to decide if they want dispensaries or marijuana shops to open in their town. And you're still kind of seeing that play out a little bit right now. There are a few um, places in the suburbs, you know, Naperville, for example, Arlington Heights, they have initially said, you know, we don't want to do this right away. We are fine sitting on the sidelines and waiting to see how this works out. And then if down the road we want to let a dispensary open, then that's fine, you know. But um, other cities, on the other hand, were a little bit more gung-ho, I think, about getting some of the tax revenue um, and just seeing how it goes. So it's been interesting to watch that play out. Yeah, tax revenue, of course, is a, is a huge thing. And in, in states where they put it up for vote, that's one of the real draws. They say, well, think about how much money we're going to get. And uh, some states mm-hmm. earmark that uh, that money, saying it's all going to go to schools. It's for the children or, you know, parks or whatever. Uh, is the money in any way earmarked in Illinois? Yeah, it is a little bit. And they actually just released the first six months of um, tax revenue for recreational sales. And the state collected almost or more than $5.2 million, which it was higher than estimates, you know, and that is something that experts have said Illinois did right because California, for example, overestimated what they were going to bring in on tax revenue, and then it kind of made them look bad, you know, but when you underestimate it and you come in on top of that, it ends up being positive, especially right now when the pandemic has scarred the state's finances so much. But um, so some of it, they there's the excise tax, portion of it that, you know, some of it goes in to pay for the operation of the program. Um, Some of it is earmarked to actually go back into communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Um, Some of the sales tax portion of it, they they share with local municipalities. And then there's an additional tax that um, cities and counties can put on it, too. So the taxes could end up being pretty high, depending on where you're buying it and what rules they've put in place. Yeah, so, with, yeah, 
with that in mind, uh, compared to the price of pot when you were buying it on the street, even with the taxes, is this a better deal? No. It's, it's still cheaper, I believe, to be bought on the street at this really? point. Um, part of that issue there is there's still a little bit of a supply issue at dispensaries, which was more of an issue back in January. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, these companies only had six months really to get ready for recreational sales. Well, it takes three to four months to grow a crop of marijuana, you know, and then you have to let it dry and process it and package it. And then when the first day of sales happens, everyone's really excited to go get in line and buy weed for the first time at a store, you know. Um, so there were supply issues. There were really long lines. Um, the smokable flower, you know, the bud that you buy and actually smoke the joint, those were nowhere to be found for the first month or two. And lines exceeded three hours, wow. you know, leading into March when the pandemic hit and that sort of changed everything. But it has kept prices decently high. Um, if you're a medical patient, you don't have to pay some of the taxes. So we did see um, an increase of medical patients at the beginning of the year, too, I think as a way to kind of get around paying some of those taxes. So people are kind of taking different tactics. Now, I haven't looked at, it's, it's really hard to track black market sales, and I haven't looked at that. But last summer, I did write a story, and I talked to a couple of drug dealers um, who said that they were worried. You know, yeah. They said that they were worried they were going to lose business, but... Then I also talked to one that told me he was not worried and, you know, he didn't think that the real shops were ever going to beat out his prices and he didn't have a bunch of regulations to abide by either, like all the stores do. So it was really kind of interesting to, to talk to them. Yeah, well, that's true. And usually they'll sell other products besides the now legal marijuana. But when I look at, uh, in fact, I'll first ask, follow up what you just said to me, uh, you said, that the medical marijuana patients get a break on taxes. Well, if doctors mm -hmm. aren't prescribing it, how does the medical marijuana patient prove that they've got the condition? That's a great question. So you have to establish a relationship with a doctor and have the doctor basically sign, up, sign a form saying, yes, this person does have one of these qualifying conditions. Um, and it has to be a relationship with the doctor. So you have to have gone in a couple times. You can't just get a random doctor to sign the paper for you. Um, and then you go from there. So it's it's kind of taking away that step of the doctor saying, here's how much you should take and when you should take it, as opposed to just saying, yes, you do have this condition. Right. And looking at that list of conditions, what is the most outlandish thing on it to your eyes? Mm, some of them I'm not even familiar with. I think something that there were a lot of lawsuits that played out. And the issue that was being argued from a lot of would-be patients was that it seemed arbitrary. You know, there was, I'm going to make this up because I sort of forget, but there was rheumatoid arthritis on there, but osteoarthritis was not on there. Or Crohn's disease was on it, but ulcerative colitis, which is essentially the same disease but attacks a different part of your digestive tract, was not. You know, so there were a lot of arguments about that. You know, what, who, why is, why are public officials deciding what diseases should be treated by this? And there were a few lawsuits that played out. Um, and then the, they passed a bill recently to, to try to change that and to broaden it. And that's one of the reasons why we have seen such a big uptick in medical patients as well over the past year, which was, I mentioned that supply issue earlier, and that was another thing contributing to that, too.
I'm looking at the list right now, and you're right. There are things I've never heard of either. Causalgia sounds like the condition that you really want to qualify for the damn drug, not, not that you've got anything. I have no right. idea what a lot of these is. Nail patella syndrome. Uh, and I don't mean to make light of this. There could be somebody listening who has that. It's the most painful thing that ever happened to me, I, mm-hmm. I suppose. But I can also see why, why yes, yeah, some people would yeah. uh, would find the it. The original list, I think, was there was a committee that involved doctors and patients, and they did, you know, they did studies. To, they didn't do studies, but they looked at research to see, you know, would marijuana actually treat this? Would the pain be helped? That kind of thing. And they have added a few here and there. Um, PTSD yeah. is one, a big one that they added recently that brought a lot of folks in. And then, this is interesting, uh, at the beginning of 2019, they started a program that allowed you to um, basically be a medical marijuana patient if you had a prescription for opioids, then you could go in and buy marijuana. Um, oh. You had to enroll in the program, but that was something interesting that the state did as well. That That is. Now, did that in any way cut down on opiate use? I never saw any studies about that. I'm sure they're out there, but I'm not sure. It was definitely a theory, and that was one of the big, the big purposes because of the pain management. You know, that's why a lot of people end up using marijuana medically and um, there's a decent amount of people enrolled a couple thousand in that particular program. Wow. Now, there is a, there is an interesting catch-22 to all of this, and that's exactly where I'm going next. I'm Raleigh James. I'm talking to Ali Marathi from the Chicago Tribune. We're talking all things Reefer Madness. Should you want to join us, I hope you will. 888-876-5593, 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E on WGN Radio. I'm getting bombed, booze and bust Living on honky-tonk time I'm getting rolled, stoned and dust Lord, you made a mess of my mind Hey, I bet you never thought that I'd survive The day you dropped the bomb, but I'm still alive We're getting bombed, booze and bust Living on honky-tonk time my heartbeat It's the rhythm of my soul I hang all around every bar in town and play the saddest songs that I know I should be dead from drinking But no matter how hard I try I'm a walking talking living proof that a broken heart don't That's Joe Sun, bombed, boozed, and busted, obviously. 1980 ovation. Got to number 21 on the country charts. He was from Rochester, Minnesota, and he died a few years ago in Florida. And he'd been a disc jockey in Madison, Wisconsin, and in Key West. And somewhere in the 70s, he said, I'm going to take a shot at being a country singer. And it worked for a while. So bombed, boozed, and busted fits with the topic because we are talking marijuana. Now the evil weed is legal in Illinois and many other states as well. I think Illinois became the 11th state, actually, to legalize it. But before we go any further, I had to look up causalgia because I thought, you know, here I am, you know, not making light of it. But what is this? Severe burning in a limb caused by injury to a peripheral nerve. And I think, well, that's pretty straightforward. Why do they call it causalgia? 
basically because they don't know the cause. That's pretty much what I came down to on that. And they call it the practice of medicine because they're still practicing. So I am Raleigh James, and I am talking with Ali Marotti from the Chicago Tribune about uh, all things uh, all things marijuana. And as I was saying moments ago, there is a catch-22 here, and I bet you Ali knows where I'm going. Uh, and really, it's true to some extent, DUIs are the only law that you can break and not know you're breaking the law. How do you know when you're, say, one toke over the line? Well, with alcohol, it's pretty streamlined in terms of how it metabolizes. It, it's a linear uh, metabolization. THC doesn't do that. It's a sticky substance, meaning stays around long after any possible effect remains. It might wind up in your fat cells and all that. So if we're looking, obviously, right after you imbibe, the number's really big. But a couple hours later, what are you dealing with? So, Ali, I'm sure this has come up. Uh, obviously, people don't want to get caught with DUIs. And how do they know? Yeah, that's a big issue, actually, um, especially when you think about drug tests that employers do. It's built into the law that employers can continue to do those drug tests. They can do whatever they want. You know, they're their employer. But it seems unfair to users because, you know, what I do in my own time is my own time. And if I got high on Friday, that doesn't mean I'm coming to work high on Monday, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that it's not – There's you can – do a test to see if you're high, like right in this moment. It's, there's a breathalyzer. Right. Um, it's still, the technology is still being developed. It's not widely available. It's not cheap. That's why it hasn't been disseminated to a lot of you know police forces and that sort of thing. I've been told that people are working on it. You know, they're developing it, and it's, it's you know coming. But that was definitely a, a huge concern for people with the legalization of this. It is a huge concern because, because again, the way this metabolizes, and of course, uh, inhalation is different from the edibles and all of that, uh, you could, a week later, easily, I mean, in some cases, a month later, test that there is, uh, you know, a, a nano, I guess it's five nanos that they, uh, that they look at, in your bloodstream, and you don't know. So, of course, that begs another question. Has there been any evidence of police departments, you know, maybe standing outside the dispensary or whatever, or trying to, shall I say, entrap, but aggressively attempt to single out users? I have not heard of that. Um, it is illegal to consume in public still when you right. buy it. they All right. the dispensaries give you the product in a sealed you know, container and bag, and you're supposed to take it home and do it. You can't smoke in your car. You can't smoke on your boat. You can't smoke it at, at the park. That doesn't mean that people aren't doing that. Right. You know, Initially, in early January, the police in Chicago kind of came out and said, we're going to work with people on this at first and try to say, hey, Maybe I'm not going to write you a ticket if I see you smoking right after you leave the dispensary, but we're going to try to educate on this. I haven't heard much about that, especially with the pandemic. I think a lot of, you know, some of the unrest that happened, I think there's been a lot of other things on people's minds, but that is a great question. Yeah, because, again, when you're when you're doing this, and really, it's a gray area. Uh, the law states there, there are five nanos. You can be charged with this, and you will not know. So, uh, it, and that's, by the way, every state I've encountered that has passed this has that same problem. Now, Arizona went a step further. They don't have recreational marijuana, but they have uh, medicinal marijuana. You have to give up your guns, 
if you have a medical marijuana card. And gun rights in Arizona are, are pretty much ubiquitous. And so are there any things to that end in Illinois in general? Obviously, probably wouldn't be guns, not in Chicago, but uh, because the laws are tight on owning them. But are there any things where there's a trade-off where you get this card and, man, there's a downside? So with recreational, no, because anybody can go in and buy it. You know, it's all you have to do is show your ID so they can prove that you're over 21 um, and you can go in and buy it. And if you're out of state, the limits are different. The purchasing limits are different because they have limited how much you can buy. How much you are allowed to possess is also limited. However, there's no real way for them to enforce if you have, you know, a bunch of weed at home in your cupboard. You know what I mean? There's, yeah, no, there's no way for them to know. Um, I do believe that initially to get your medical card, because at that point you're in the system that is tracked by the state, you know, and I think that did stop a lot of people from getting it. A lot of people have said, you know, maybe I'm a teacher. I don't want them to know that I do this because the district might frown upon it or whatever. The example may be um, they used to have to get a fingerprint and a background check, and they took that requirement away, and that increased a lot of you know, the numbers of medical patients. Um, I, I think maybe there was a, a CDL requirement, something with that. You couldn't have both, but they may have yeah. done away with that too. I'm, I'm not quite up to date on that. But with recreational, anybody over the age of 21 can go in and buy it. You did bring up an interesting point, though, that I wanted to discuss, which is the fact that this is not legal in any surrounding state to Illinois. Michigan is the closest state that has recreational marijuana. But a lot of the dispensaries told me early on and continuing, you know, through now, a lot of their customers were coming from Wisconsin, coming from Indiana, coming from, you know, St. Louis to, over the state line to buy it, and then likely driving back to their homes, crossing state lines, which is, in fact, a federal offense. That Absolutely. And when I was living in Philadelphia, they actually had cops who would sit by the bridge because there were less taxes on liquor, either in New Jersey coming into Philadelphia or, or vice versa. And they would nab people for not paying the state tax on uh, on booze. So has there been any effort, like, say, somebody in Gary, maybe sitting by the state line saying, let's see who's coming by? I'm there may have been. I have not heard of any specific examples. Um, I do know, though, I think it's interesting from a business perspective, some of, some dispensaries, so right now we're in this phase of the program where more dispensaries are opening, right? I mentioned earlier that it was just those medical companies. Um, there were 55 dispensaries around the state that were allowed to sell recreational starting January 1st. And then all those operating dispensaries were allowed to open one other location. So some have started doing that. And one of them that just opened last week, I believe, is right in on 90, before, right when you cross into Illinois from Wisconsin. You know, it's right by South Beloit. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first things you see when you cross into the state. And we did do a story about that earlier last year, earlier this year, that companies were saying specifically, we're going to locate close to the state line so we can kind of get those people that are wanting to come in from the other states. Yeah, South Beloit, not not far from Madison. Easy to get there. <laughs> so I can see right. this. Now, of course, when this was first being discussed before the law was passed, you did have all the individuals who felt that it was the end of the world as they knew it, and, and these this was just going to be awful on seven different ways to Sunday. Has any of that played out? Have any of the fears materialized that people had about this? 
Not that I've heard. That's an interesting question. I'm sure that there have been some local issues with it. But one thing that I think is really important to look at now is that heading into the pandemic in March, these dispensaries were designated as essential, which has, I think, defined and will define what the industry is going to look like going forward. You know, I think it said a lot to people that doubted whether this was a legitimate industry and I think that it kind of catalyzed a lot of changes in, in operations with the dispensaries that are going to end up sticking around. For example, ordering online. That was not something that was widespread initially. I mentioned those really long lines at the beginning because people kind of just wanted to go in and there were supply issues. Now what I'm hearing from dispensaries is, is that it's, it's very streamlined. You know, there are a lot of concerns. So right now, for example, there is um, – a dispensary that's being discussed in the Gold Coast neighborhood, and the neighbors, residents of the Gold Coast, do not want it to open. They think that it's going to add congestion to the street. There's going to be too many lines. The social distancing is not going to work out. Um, you know, it's too close to school. They think those sorts of concerns. The company has answers to all those concerns, obviously, but some of the the answers to the concerns like the congestion have come specifically out of the pandemic, right? And things that they've learned there. Like now you can just order online and select your time when you want to go pick up your product. Say it's two o'clock, roll in there at two o'clock, pay for it and leave. So there's not a big long line that's forming because of the social distancing standards. And it sounds like it's something that's really going to keep going, which I think is an interesting development. Well, you're always going to have the NIMBY, the not-in-my-backyard crowd. And, uh, the, the, exactly. You know, whether it's congestion or this will bring undesirables to our neighborhood or, or what have you, it's, it's going to be there. And I would assume that if this is a legal activity, which it is, and obviously, uh, I shouldn't say obviously, I guess I should ask, this isn't zoned where you can only open dispensaries in certain locations, is it? It is. It's pretty strictly zoned, actually. Tell me so about that. With the, yeah, so with the medical ones that are the majority of the ones that are operating right now, we've really only had a few of the new ones open since January. Um, the medical ones were very strictly regulated, and at the beginning, back in 2015, it was very hard for the operators to find a place. They got relegated to industrial areas, not places where you would go shop, you know, and that is something that they want to change with recreational sales. They want to be in the major corridors. Initially, people were looking at Michigan Avenue, you know, wanting to run out the old Apple store on the Mag Mile, like that kind of stuff. However, the city of Chicago specifically has some pretty strict regulations on where they can be. They can't be on the lakefront. They can't be on Michigan. They have to, um, there can only be so many in zones that the city has created. And there's been, there's been a really intense process to get the proper permits and zoning to be in the city of Chicago. So we're starting to see where they might pop up. There's a new one that's already opened in River North. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one opened in River North just last week. River North was a hot spot because it was close. It was the closest you could be to the loop because they're not allowed in the loop either to get that kind of after work traffic. Um, The one in the Gold Coast I mentioned, there's a a few that want to open kind of on Restaurant Row or on Randolph. There's a few that want to open kind of, you know, it, basically in big shopping areas, you know, what you would think of as retail corridors. Basically, each city was allowed to come up with their own zoning, and Chicago has had the most in-depth one that I've seen. And it'll be interesting to see kind of where they end up. But then you have some, like I mentioned, the one in uh, South Beloit, that they're more rural, you know, they're more out and not, not surrounded by everything. And 
those seem to be the bigger ones. You know, they've got the big parking lots. They're flashy. These in Illinois, they're not the stereotypical head shop type feel when you go in. It's all very pharmaceutical, almost techy. You, it, it, part of the law is you can't display products like mm-hmm. they can out west. It, most of it's kept lock, locked up in a vault. So when you walk in, maybe you do get a little bit of the odor, you know, the gunky smell, but mostly it's streamlined. You're looking at the menu online before you get in there or on a tablet or something, and you just, you know, tell the person that works there what you want, and you get it, and you leave. And it's, I think, not what a lot of people expect when they go in because the regulations here are so strict oh, yeah. about that kind of stuff. Yeah, and of course, it started out medical, and it is going to have that that feel to it that's more uh, mm-hmm. uh, codified, if you were. But I'm still interested about this zoning. In terms of, mm-hmm. uh, normally, it would be you can only be in districts that are zoned uh, 1R or whatever the, the zoning is. But when a city starts to say you can't be on the lakefront, you can't be on Michigan, uh, how do you zone that other than say, we don't want you on these streets? Yeah, they, well, they came up with like specific zoning rules and that is what they did they said you can't be in the loop you can't be on the streets and then they divided the city and i think it was seven zones and then only initially like only seven could be in each zone you know so it's it's complicated you know and there are a lot of rules and they're one of the dispensaries that just opened last week in river north um the city already issued a stop work order because they didn't have all their proper building permits you know Mm -hmm. Right now, the next big thing that's going to happen in the industry besides these, um, you know, these new dispensaries that are opening here and there that I've mentioned is that the state is going to award 75 licenses to folks to open new dispensaries. And it's a big deal because it's the first time anybody that hasn't already been operating in the industry and in the medical marijuana industry can get in. Um, and that has been a big critique of the industry here in Illinois is that it's run by these big companies. A lot of them... You know, they're vertically integrated because they own the marijuana growing facilities and they own a handful of dispensaries as well. So the little guy wants to get in, you know, the small business owners. And this is their chance to do that. Now, that the warding of those licenses has has been delayed because of the coronavirus. But it's something that they're already running into. Those folks are running into. It's hard to figure out the zoning. There are very few available properties that abide by the zoning. And that was one of the reasons why the current operators, there was a mad dash and kind of intense competition for space. Some of the rules are that you can't be within 500 feet. I think it's 500 feet of a school. You can't be within 1500 feet of another dispensary, which did become an issue. Kind of there was a couple of companies duking it out in river North at a few other locations. Um, there's one that wants to open over in the West loop and there was some concern among residents there that it was too close to a, rehabilita- a rehabilitation facility. <laughs> um, now, that has not gotten its proper approvals from the city yet, so I'm not sure what's going to play out there. But it is interesting to see kind of, you know, these little pockets of the city and where these dispensaries want to go and why and what the problems are. Yeah, I, I would think the rehab facilities would encourage it. I mean, that's clearly more business all the way. <laughs> right? uh, there, there's another aspect of this as well, and that is where you can and where you cannot smoke or eat or whatever it is you're doing with your own THC. We'll we'll get to that. But with that in mind, landlords can decide whether you can imbibe or not. We'll find out about that. We're talking with 
Ali Marotti. She's a business reporter at the Chicago Tribune covering tech and the business of marijuana. And I got a couple tech questions, too. If you've got a question, you can join us, 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. It is WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James. This is WGN Radio. And we are talking with Ali Marotti about, yes, the, the dreaded weed, so to speak, which turns out not to be so so dreaded at this point. Uh, of course, a uh, good point made repeatedly that this is the pandemic and so a lot of what is to come will be shaped differently once we're not on all sorts of restrictions but speaking of restrictions all right like like alcohol it uh, can be not legal to use it in certain places we've talked about schools and things like that but one of the things here is landlords have the right to ban it on private properties now has that been an issue alan it has been, yeah. They initially it was kind of out. There was a bit of an uproar over it um, because of a lot of people that would be customers felt if I can't do it outside, I can't do it in my apartment. Then where can I smoke it or consume it? Right. Um, there's also there's also an argument that a lot of very popular these days are the edibles. So the, you know the gummies, the brownies, the whatevers you know, that you want to consume and it does not get off, give off the skunky odor like smoking it does. Mm-hmm. Um, vaping is also very popular, which again, isn't quite as pungent. So initially, I think back in early January, Mayor Lightfoot came out and actually said, you know, we will not ticket you if you're on your back porch smoking it, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that used tensions a little bit. Um, you know, I've anecdotally seen people smoking it in their cars instead mm-hmm. of their apartments that are sitting parked, which again, you're not supposed to do. So mm-hmm. I think it's, and people are probably getting creative. They really do fear their landlords in that way. You know, as we're talking about this, at first I thought, oh man, this is a real problem. Why would landlords do this? But landlords may ban smoking no matter what it is. So it, it somewhat mm-hmm. comes in line with that. The edibles seem perfect, but I have a feeling that the next big business in Chicago is going to be weight loss clinics. Now, <laughs> the governor is, did my favorite part of all of this actually, is in the process of pardoning marijuana convictions. Well, thank God. Uh, as long as there wasn't any serious accompanying crime. Do you happen to know the statistics of what percentage of marijuana convictions are involved with another crime. I don't know the statistics on that, but that is interesting, an interesting point. And it was low-level convictions that they were expunging, and it was expected to be a process. You know, they you have to go to get the record expunged is a little bit hard, and some of the marijuana companies were helping people do that. There's a really big social equity component of this law. And I mentioned earlier that some of the taxes actually go back into reinvesting into communities that have been really hit hard by the war on drugs. Um, there's a lot of provisions for folks that want to get into the industry that come from one of those disproportionately impacted areas or also have a marijuana arrest on their record. You actually get basically bonus points on your application to open a business because they are trying to make this more equitable and that, um, you know, Expungement is a, is one of the legs of that stool. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention too about the landlord situation is that there was some concern initially as well that if you um, lived in government housing, you wouldn't be allowed to smoke it. Same yeah. with kids on college campuses, right? Because a lot of yeah. college campuses do ban it. Right. Um, so it's kind of interesting. That is, especially the government housing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. ha- has that played out in any way? Do you know? 
I haven't heard of any, um, but again, I think a lot of this didn't come to the forefront as much as it would have. We would have been in a pandemic. Exactly. But it, the, kind of going back to the equity point, that was the original concern, right? Like this is supposed to be an equitable law. Folks that are living in government housing should be able to partake as well. I have a feeling that's uh, that's going to be an issue down the road. I have a feeling eventually some of the zoning requirements may be an issue as well. Right now, uh, the the hopefuls just want to get in there and operate, but I don't think we're mm-hmm. we're done with uh, litigation by any means. And uh, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. And if I were me, I'd, I'd legalize everything and just tax the heck out of it. But uh, it's cert- <laughs> certainly a start. And uh, Ali, it's it's fascinating. And thank you for spending an hour with us. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.